Well, good afternoon to most of you, and good morning to a few of you, and belatedly, hello to some of you who are around the world and may not hear this tape for a week or two or three or however long. Before Power Rangers, there were other nursery rhymes that uh, some of us heard as children, and some of you will probably remember about an overgrown egg sitting on a wall, and it goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Does that remind you of anything? Sounds just like the church today to me. When did all this disharmony and this disunity actually begin? Was it in 1975 or in 1986? No, we have to go back a long ways before that. It began, as Christ describes it in Isaiah 14, when the father of pride lifted himself up and decided that he could run things better than God the Father and Jesus Christ could. Well, Satan rebelled against God, and disharmony occurred in the universe. It must have been a very traumatic thing for the Father and the Son for this to have occurred. But when they created human beings on the earth, they made us mortal. We were given free moral agency to choose life or to choose death, and they reserved the right to destroy us if we chose wrongly. There's been very little real unity and harmony since Satan's rebellion. We find a few isolated cases with ancient Israel, an isolated case in Acts 2, which did not last very long before the Ephesian church lost its first love and apostasy began to come in. Uh, wolves and false teachers began to come into the flock. So it's been only here and there that there has been any unity and harmony. And there's never been complete unity and harmony in the universe since Satan rebelled. So it goes all the way back. It continued very quickly with Adam and Eve, who were given every opportunity a couple could possibly have been given. An idyllic situation, not idolic, is uh, an idol, but idyllic. Everything which possibly could be good, it was good. But Adam and Eve could not keep even the very simplest instruction. Don't eat of that tree. How very simple that was. Not complicated. You didn't have to go into the Greek or the Hebrew to figure out exactly what God meant when he said don't eat of that tree. It was pretty cut and dry. But they chose wrongly with some influence from the great destroyer, the one who destroyed unity in the first place. This unity and disharmony will continue on this earth until after Armageddon. I used to explain, oh, 30 years ago, to new people coming into God's church who didn't comprehend the plan of God. They thought, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, that as the Protestants taught, that God and the devil were at war for Christians. And the big push by the Protestants was to get everybody baptized just as soon as possible after they were born, so they could be saved, and Satan would lose those that many. But looking at all the billions of people who've lived on the earth, Satan apparently was winning the war. 
But God has a plan. And that was not his plan, and he's not in that race with Satan right now. In fact, he has concluded most of the world in unbelief, as Paul says in Romans. And he has spoken here a little, there a little, as Isaiah 28 shows. And he spoke in parables that they might be taken and snared and deceived so that he would not have to judge them harshly when they rebelled. And not until later, after Satan is chained, will most of those people have their opportunity of salvation. And we see this happening now in microcosm in the church. Just before it is performed on the world, the duality of it is that the church is being decimated, torn, disunified, disharmony. If we are to have compassion and mercy and pity and love for the people of this world, then we will have walked in their moccasins before the physical tribulation hits them, just as Christ walked in our shoes before we ever put them on. It's fair that way. That way he can be a compassionate and loving high priest, having gone through what you and I are suffering. But this is not going to stop, brethren, as I explained to the new prospective members in those years. Mankind just simply does not want to accept God's sovereignty in the universe. So Christ is going to let this thing go until, at least figuratively, the bombs are in the air that will destroy mankind from the face of the earth at the Battle of Armageddon before Christ intervenes at the last split second and saves us from ourselves. Otherwise, someone would pipe up in the back row and say, if you'd have given us another year, we would have worked it out. We would have had our global peace plan in place, and everything would have happened just right. So he's going to wait until the last split second and save us from ourselves. I think we're going to see that in the church of God. That God is going to allow this separation to continue. And indeed, it is increasing right now. We keep hearing reports here and there about people leaving other groups, people leaving our group. The separation has not stopped. And no man can put it back together again. All the king's horses or all the king's men can't do it. And God is going to make us all understand that none of us is capable of unifying the church. It has to be an act of God, perhaps working through the witnesses or however he chooses to do it, but we will have to understand that God is behind this, and it is that his spirit that gives the power. God is going to save this church. Now, we realize that it is difficult because he said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And that is true. Many are called and few chosen. God called many, many people through Herbert Armstrong, whose work, I believe, basically at this point was a conduit to call people. And now God is selecting and choosing from those that were called into the Worldwide Church of God those years back as a remnant. But there will come a time when he will save essentially all Israel, as he says in Romans 11:26. We cannot forget that there's a millennium coming. And if you read Zechariah 14, it says, Everyone will go up to feast, keep the feast and worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And if anyone doesn't, such as Egypt, for example, 
They will receive no rain. So not only will the gates be open wide to salvation, but everyone will come. And if they don't, no rain until they do come. Because God is going to set his hand to save Israel, and he will do it. And Israel, who died in the tribulation, is going to be resurrected in Ezekiel 37. And they will accept God, because he says he will do the job. Some scriptures indicate that only a few will be saved now. And that is that context. Only a remnant. Perhaps more will come out of the tribulation having repented. But some will do it now. Now, for a brief review, last time I spoke, we saw the separation is continuing, and I've already mentioned that today, that we have to rend our hearts and turn to God with all our beings before the carnage will stop and God can again bless. In Hosea 4, 5, I quoted that God says, I will destroy your mother. And that has happened before our eyes. But as long as pride and vanity reign, unity cannot occur. Proverbs 15, 25, again by review, says, I will destroy the house of the proud. James 4, we went into, which shows that the warring between the splinters and the individuals continues because of our lusts, our vanities, our egos, our pride. And also that Satan is involved in this, and that's another whole subject which we touched on. He is devouring whomsoever he can. Now, we say, we mouth the word, that we want unity to be restored to the church. Do we, brethren? How much do we want unity to be restored? What will you give? What will you pay? What will you do to help unity return to God's church? Those are questions which I want you to take personally. I take them personally. Sometimes we give a sermon and maybe we step on somebody's toes and they feel bad about it. And somebody else says, well, don't take it personally. It was a general admonition. Brethren, I don't want to waste my time here today. I want every last one of us to take this personally. Because God speaks to us as individuals, not as a group. It's easy to say, oh, well, that's the group. What about me? Now, some of you will recall on Pentecost, I gave a sermon about Acts and Joel. And we quoted this part in here, in Joel 2 and verse 12. Therefore also now, says the Lord... Turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Now, one fast is not going to solve all our problems, but it's the beginning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. Who knows if he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him? He says, try me. See if I will. If you will do what I have just told you to do, God says. Now let's ask another question today. What does it mean to rend your heart? How do you go about it? 
I mean, we've fasted before, and we've prayed before, and we've wept before God's throne, I'm sure. But what does it mean to rend your heart? Someone asked me that question after I gave the sermon. I said, well, I guess I never have really thought about it too much. It just tells me to do it, but I don't know what I'm doing. Does it mean that I grab hold of it and wring it a little bit? Or what does it mean? What does the word rend mean? First of all, let's go to Webster. He defines it as a violent removal. To split in pieces or tear apart with violence. To tear hair and clothing in anger, despair, or grief. <coughs> to lacerate mentally or emotionally. To pierce. All right, that's Webster. What's the Bible definition? Let's go to the Bible and look up a few places where rend is used. And I'll begin in Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Here's a prayer of David for deliverance. O Lord my God, in you do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. And we feel we need deliverance now, so this could be our prayer. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. Well, that pretty well squares with Webster, doesn't it, so far? Tear it in pieces, like a lion does a body. Genesis 37, 33. I won't turn to this one, but you remember the coat of many colors where Jacob said Joseph is no doubt rent in pieces when they brought the coat in with all the blood on it. So rent to him meant tear limb from limb, as lions would do a carcass. Now let's go to Judges 14. Judges 14. Here's a very interesting story. Uh, talking about Samson here, and uh, verse 5, a young lion roared against Samson, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Now, if I were faced with a 500-pound African lion, I would hope the Spirit of God would come mightily upon me, because that's a scary situation. So this is of God, it's not of Samson, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid, and he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. Now how do you rend a kid? If you're preparing a kid for butchering, a lamb, a goat, or any kind of an animal, what do you do? Generally, you string it up on a pole, and you cut it from right under the chin all the way back to the tail, and you open it up, and the bowels fall out. That's the way you rend a kid. What an incredible thing this must have been. Maybe he grabbed it by the beard and by the Spirit of God. He put his finger in and the skin there under the lip and just ripped it all the way down. I don't know whether he ripped the rib cage open or not, but you usually do that when you rend a kid. So maybe he took hide bones and all and exposed the heart, the lungs, everything, all the way down to the tail. Kind of an interesting story, with a little humorous sidelight to it. Uh, when he came back by there, the where he had ripped it apart, and I imagine, I don't know whether he ripped the guts and the heart and the lungs and everything out with his hand or not, you can, uh, or whether they had been eaten out by bugs and, and other predators, but at any rate, the bees had built a big honeycomb inside the lion's ribcage. So Samson must have not had a real queasy stomach reached in and got a bunch of the honey and ate it. 
And then he thought, this is pretty good, so he took some to his father and his mother. And he didn't tell them where it came from, <laughs> it says here, but he gave it to them and they ate it. Uh, had he told them where it came from, probably they wouldn't have eaten it. I guess what they didn't know didn't hurt them, but he didn't feel like saying it. But what did he do with that lion? He exposed what was on the inside of the animal. Opened it up. So God is saying that we have to violently open our hearts. Do you know what's in your heart? Deceitful and desperately wicked. We know Jeremiah tells us that. God already knows what's all, what all is in there. He can read your heart and mind. Knows your thoughts. Knows what you hide from him. And you partly know what's in your heart, probably. You're converted. You have God's Holy Spirit. And therefore, he has revealed to you somewhat of what is in there. But I suspect that all of us have held some things back, trying to hide them from God like Adam and Eve did. They tried to hide some things. What else is in there that you may not have seen? Do you have any blind spots? Or maybe some things that you've chosen to tuck away in the dark corner of your heart that you don't want to give up yet. Maybe that you're not willing to face. Maybe you have some pet or secret sins that you sort of like. And let certain evil thoughts of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, or envy reside there. What areas are you not willing to cut out? Or what areas are you afraid to even broach because you're afraid you can't overcome them? And therefore, you hide them from man and you hide them from God. Now, it's sort of silly, isn't it? Because God already knows anyway. But we're afraid for fear we'll have to do something about it. We might have to overcome pet sins or attitudes, impatience, intolerance with other people. Sometimes we let a lot of criticism that we may not use stay with our lips, dwell in our hearts, condemnation perhaps of others. So we tend to hide from ourselves and God. Adam and Eve tried that. <laughs> How ridiculous. It's like a three-, four-year-old kid up on the cabinet, and uh, parents know what's going on. They come in the room, and the kid has heard them coming and has beat a hasty retreat off the cabinet, but the lid on the cookie jar is still cocked just a little bit, not flat down on it like it should be, and the kid's standing there with his hands behind his back and crumbs on his face. But he gives it a stiff upper lip and says, nope, haven't been in the cookie jar. Who does he think he's kidding? You can't fool that and mom. I can remember as a child being amazed at how they knew what I was thinking. Just because I was sort of leaning that direction. I can tell what my dog is about to do before he chases a cat. His ears come up and his... Mouth begins to salivate, and he gets this wild look in his eye. I know what he's thinking. This is too hard. God knows about us, too. But we like to show our good sides. We like to take pride in our family, our beauty, our strength, our intelligence, our Christianity, whatever it is that our humility, as uh, Martin Collins said in the sermon that we heard, we'd be proud of our humility, and it's not real humility at all. It's a false humility. We're proud of being humble. 
We don't like to be exposed for what we really are, even to ourselves. Adam and Eve lost their naivety. They tried to hide their bodies, their attitudes. You notice how it is when you feel like you are in danger of being exposed, your whole body, to the public? How you shrink back in fear and dive for a towel or dive for some clothes or to get behind something because you don't want anyone seeing you naked. But when people rent their clothes in the Old Testament, they expose themselves all the way down as an act of humility, as an act, as an act of contriteness. What God is asking of us is more than just a wringing of our hands. He's asking us, brethren, to violently tear open our hearts and expose the entirety of what is in there to ourselves, to God, and to people as necessary. And he will give us no quarter, no dark, hidden corner, corners. We've got to show it all. We don't want to do that, do we? We shrink from that. But God says we have to do it. Now, if you've been a little timid about admitting to God everything that is in your heart and mind, have you seriously gotten on your knees and asked, you, asked him to show you every foul thing that is in your heart and mind? That is a scary proposition if you really mean it. I prefer God to show me a little at a time. Something that I think maybe I'd like to overcome now. I don't want the whole load dumped on me. But God says these are serious emergency times and we need to clean it out, rend it, violently. Let's see a little more. Second Chronicles 34. Second Chronicles 34. <coughs> Here's a story. During the reign of King Josiah, who was a righteous king before God, the context here in verse 8 is the repairing of the house of God. And they made the plans, turned it over to God, and we are facing here a time when God's house has been torn down, and we are looking at the possibilities of how it might be repaired as well. So the parallel is here for us today. But what happened? Verse 19, it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law, they lost track of the law of God through various evil kings, that he rent his clothes. Josiah realized, oh no, we're doing everything contrary to what the law of God tells us to do. We saw that in Worldwide, where suddenly the law of God had been voided in front of our very eyes. But Josiah rent his clothes, just tore them right down the front. Verse 21, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in the book. This is an interesting story. Verse 22, the keeper of the ward, wardrobe was told the king rent his clothes, apparently, and uh, let's get some new clothes over there, and everybody doesn't want to see the king, and this is embarrassing for him. They spoke to her to that effect, verse 22, and she answered them, verse 23, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell you the man that sent you to me, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place because of the curses written in the book, because they had disobeyed and made that choice. They had burned incense to other gods, verse 25. But now Josiah had the correct response. He rent his clothes. And God told him in verse 27, Because your heart was tender, and you did humble yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humbled yourself before me, and did rend your clothes and weep before me, I have even heard you also, says the Eternal. And he said that he would go to his grave in peace in verse 28 as a result of this. Now verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. We could say that that is the church today. Uh, in type again, the duality of spiritual Israel and physical Israel. The proper thing to do when you realize that the law of God has been voided in the congregation of Israel, spiritually of the church today, he gathered all the people, verse 30, great and small, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. Verse, verse 32, and he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. He put their feet to the fire, in other words. We must do something about this, Josiah said. And all the horrible things that God said he would do, he waited to do until King Josiah died and went to his grave in peace because of Josiah's rending of his heart realizing how terrible a thing this was. Hosea 13, I won't turn to this one and read it all, but it says there that God will rend the call or the covering from the heart of Ephraim. Ephraim represents the tribes as the leader, so it includes us. If we don't rend our own hearts, God says he will rend our hearts. It's going to be done, one way or the other. You know, there's in the courts of men, usually if someone turns himself in ahead of time and admits what he did wrong, he can plead for leniency and very often receives it from the courts of man. And the same is true of God. If we come contritely and lovingly and meekly before him and admit our wrong, change our ways, he will give us grace and mercy and leniency. But we're going to see that he won't do that if he is the one who has to rend our heart for us. Let's go to Isaiah 13. I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 3. And we'll see that right now. Isaiah 3. Here he's talking about the daughters of Zion in verse 16. The mother was the worldwide church of God. And I think the parallel can pretty well be used without making much of a reach that the daughters of Zion, the daughters of worldwide, are the splinter groups that came off. And he says some of them are haughty, perhaps all of them, just says the daughters of Zion, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. They aren't righteous either. They also have settled on their lees, rested on their oars, said, well, we got an organization again and everything's okay and have dropped the individual responsibility that God expects of every last one of us to take personally. And maybe this is a generalization, and not everyone has done that, 
But the splintering has not stopped, has it? It's still continuing. Therefore, this must be talking to us, because God is still angry and is still splitting us apart. He says here in verse 17, The Lord will discover their secret parts. Now, in speaking of the physical nation, he says, Because of the pride and the lack of turning to God, he is going to bring an enemy nation, and he is going to cause the clothing to be stripped off, and rape will occur of our women. But the same thing is being done spiritually to us today. Verse 24, it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent. The clothes will be rent right off. And instead of well-set hair, baldness and burning instead of beauty. There's another place in Ezekiel 16:39, where he says, I will strip you naked and bare. Another place he says, I'll discover the rivers. What's he talking about? God is going to strip the clothing right off of us. And we will be absolutely naked before the world with no dignity. The King James tries to hide the meaning by saying, discover the rivers. Make you naked and bare. But what he's saying is, I'm going to... Everyone's pee-pee is going to show. I don't know what ladies, which term you ladies use, but there are no secret parts. God is going to strip us all if we don't strip ourselves spiritually and rend our hearts and not our garments. I make a point of this because God does here, and we'll see another reason for the point a little later on. Someone recently made the comment, you go into a hospital and you lose all control. You lose all dignity. You're just there. They do anything and everything to you. There's nothing they don't check or probe or push. God says he's going to do that to the whole nation. To check us out, to find out what's wrong. Now let's go to Job. We'll see that this, this thought is continued. This sounds horrible. And make it, maybe it makes some of you queasy, and I'm sorry for that. But these are the words of God Almighty in the Bible. Job 1 and verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, Job had just had his family killed, his flocks and herds destroyed, his health ruined. Or maybe that came later. I'm not sure where I am in the story here. But at any rate, he shaved off his, his hair and rent his clothes. And he shows here that he was naked before mankind. That is abject humility. We all recoil from the idea of our bodies being exposed. We're afraid someone would either laugh or puke, I guess. But there is that certain modesty that we have there. We don't want that to happen, do we? Well, they rent their clothes in those days, and I'm thankful God doesn't tell us to rend our clothes. But he does tell us to rend our hearts. And the object is true humility. Let's go to Leviticus 13 now. Leviticus 13, and here you have a situation where 
there was a plague of leprosy. And the leper, in verse 45, in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and he shall cry, unclean, unclean, wherever he goes. Does it remind you of the publican? Here was a man who recognized his uncleanness, would not so much as even lift his eyes to God in heaven, but bowed and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was humble before God in that sense. Pharisee felt like he was okay. He was kind of special. He was a leader, and he was following God's laws the best he understood them, and he had lost his understanding of them, as well as the traditions of the fathers. But Christ told him he was filthy and ignorant, and that he would look to the publican first, one who was contrite and of a humble spirit. That's what God tells us in Isaiah. But the instruction of these was to admit that they were unclean, to let other people know, not come into church with this false sense of spiritual superiority that we might tend to get, which John mentioned before services be, or before the sermon began, which I appreciated very much. This is a time of mourning and of weeping and of repenting and not, in that sense, putting our best foot forward to make people think that we are just A-OK. Because obviously, look at what's happening to the church and God tells us we're not A-OK. We still have problems that have to be overcome. We haven't learned how to treat each other yet. So, to admit that we're unclean is the first step. But it had to be humbling for the leper, and he was to rend his clothes. And if you go on through, I won't read the whole thing. But if the leprosy was in the clothes, apparently you could see it, you rent it, you tore it out. And if you looked at the garment and you saw, still saw some more, you tore another piece off. And then you tore another piece off until the plague and the leprosy could not be seen in the clothing. That meant in some cases somebody might have been nearly naked. Verse 56, And if the priest look and behold the plague be somewhat dark after the washing of it, that he shall rend it out of the garment or out of the skin or out of the warp or out of the wool. <laughs> the very inner threads. So keep tearing until it is all gone. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, if there is any vanity, any pride, of any kind in us. God says, keep tearing until it's all gone. Jude 22 through 23. <laughs> Excuse me, I strained my voice a little bit. Jude 22 through 23. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, heating even the garments spotted by the flesh. So Jude uses somewhat the same simile here say that hate even the garment of filth. Get rid of it. <clears throat> Save with fear. Maybe I'm putting some fear on us today from the scriptures. I, I, hope, I hope so. I don't want us to walk out of here saying, oh, that was a good sermon, preacher, and then go do nothing about it. That is not what God wants. He wants us individually to rend our hearts. Let's go to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36. 
Is there a glass of water? Uh, I could maybe someone. Not because I'm thirsty, but because I want to be able to talk here. <clears throat> uh, where was I headed now? Oh no, I don't. I got a little ahead of myself. Let's go to Isaiah first of all. Isaiah 64. And here the prayer is: Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at your presence. Thank you. That Christ would tear the heavens, the skies apart, and return and solve these problems. That's a prayer we all have, isn't it? We want him to return and solve the difficulties, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Verse 4, For since the beginning of the world men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, beside you what he has prepared for him that waits for him, who endures to the end, who patiently waits for Christ. But there's a problem first, verse 6, But we are all as unclean an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Do we have anything to rend out of there? The righteous will scarcely be saved, God says. Our righteousnesses amount to filthy claws. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calls upon your name that stirs up himself to take hold of you, like Jacob did when Christ came, grabbed hold of him and would not turn loose all night. Well, we sat in the church, the temple, the temple. It's okay. But he says, stir yourself up and take hold of Christ. In other words, that is a positive, commanded reaction. That is the response God wants when we find these conditions in the church and in ourselves. Not to shrink back, as Paul said, but to come boldly to the throne of grace and lay hold on God and not turn loose no matter what. To hang on for dear life, for you have hid your face from us. Has he not? He said he did. And you have consumed us because of our iniquity. We wonder why the church is in the shape it's in. He tells us right here. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are potter. And we're the work of your hand. Be not wroth, very sore, O oh Lord, neither remember our iniquity forever. That's our prayer, isn't it? Behold, see, we beseech you. We are all your people. Isn't this the church of God? Why don't you hear us, O oh Lord? Because our iniquities have come between us and God. And he is chasing us, chastening us, as he does every son whom he loves. Doesn't mean we should be discouraged. It means we should straighten the lame foot and lift our hands to God and take hold on him. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Looked at the church lately. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. It isn't even a shadow of what it was 15 or 20 years ago. Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very sore? Will you continue to punish us? Well, Isaiah 65, he says there's some conditions. Verse 2, I've spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walked in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. 
a people that provokes me to anger continually, a church that's gone back to eating swine, a church that's gone back to worshiping pagan gods on Easter and Christmas and Sunday worship, and on and on and on it goes. Verse 5, which say, Stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. We are holy now. We are full of grace now. We are okay now. We are righteous. All you people who think you have to still keep the law don't realize that we got it made. By the grace of God, everything is fine now. Don't believe it. He goes on to show that this won't work. Do we sometimes, maybe I'm referring more to worldwide here in the sense of the leadership and where a lot of the people have gone, not all, but some, but do we who have come out sometimes think maybe we're just a little bit special? Maybe we're okay. What if you're sitting around a table with a bunch of new people you haven't known before, and there's a braggart in the group? Somebody that talks and talks and talks and talks about himself all the time. How long does it take you to figure out, when you sit down at that table, that there's someone who thinks he's just a little bit better than anybody else? Just a little bit special. His story's a little better. His life's a little better. His name's a little better. Can't everyone see? He's the one talking all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a loquacious personality, that that's wrong. I don't mean that at all. I'm just saying that sometimes that hint that we get out to others is that we think we're okay. That's a pitfall we need to be very, very careful about. The splinters get to warring among themselves as to who's Laodicean and who's Philadelphian. And, of course, nobody would like to consider themselves Laodicean. We'd all like to think we're Philadelphians. But I'll tell you what, when I read all those about all seven churches, I find things in there about me and all of them. And it usually isn't the good part. Except where God may have helped me modify some things. And we need to recognize and see God in our lives. Yes, we need to see that God is working with us, brethren. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't get lifted up a little bit and think that we're okay. Because then God says, take heed lest you fall when you think you stand. And pride comes before a fall, and on and on. Now to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36, <clears throat> verse 24. Here we have a case, I'll go back to the very beginning, uh, Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah, the righteous king, and uh, Jeremiah had a message from God, which he, he called Baruch in verse 4, who was a scribe for Jeremiah, and told him, write down these words, Baruch, that I have to give as a message to the king. So he did, and we're going down in verse 13, Baruch read the book in the ears of the people, and then all the princes and the leaders and so on Heard, it, heard this, and they said, we'll tell the king of this. Verse 19, then said the princess to Baruch, go hide you, you and Jeremiah, and let no man know where you be. These are powerful, stinging words. You better go hide before we take this to the king. Now remember, this is all written to us. 
Verse 21, And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. I don't want to hear this, the king said, and threw it in the fire and burned it, despised, denied the message from Jeremiah that came from God. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of the servants that heard all these words. So Josiah's son, as God had said, was going to reap the whirlwind because of not following his father Josiah's steps and fearing before God and keeping his laws. Verse 25, Nevertheless, some fellows made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. I don't want to hear this, people. Verse 28, God spoke to Jeremiah again and says, Take you again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll which Jehoiakim burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this roll, saying, Why have you written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast? We better listen when God tells us to repent, to rend our hearts, because if we don't, God will bring Isaiah 3 upon us, among many other scriptures, whether it's 26, Deuteronomy 28, and many in the New Testament as well. <clears throat> now let's go to Ezra 9. Ezra 9. <clears throat> Another case of rending here. Picking up the context, we, we know the story that Israel had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They were just returning to Jerusalem from Babylon. And during that sojourn in Babylon, they had intermarried, they had accepted Babylonian practices, they had simply, basically forgotten God and what God wanted them to do. Just as we sat in worldwide and as doctrine changed and doctrine changed, we sort of went to sleep. And God said they all slumbered and slept. Every last one of us was into some degree of slumber and not really overcoming. Can you really say of yourselves from about 1975 and especially 1986 that you were diligently working every day to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ? Can you say that you were getting on your knees and pouring your heart out before God? That you had God just wholeheartedly as the very center of your life? That you were growing and overcoming and that you had really taken hold of God? Or can we all say we were asleep at the switch and it sort of gone off the track? I think it would be a rare person who said they stayed wide awake through that whole thing. Now, we may have recognized things were wrong, but I don't think we were overcoming in the way that Paul and James and John and Christ and others tell us we need to be overcoming, in the way Joel tells us here in these scriptures we're reading today. Jeremiah 36. Oh, excuse me, we did that. I'll get it together, I hope. Ezra 9. <clears throat> Here they had come out of Babylon, as I said. Verse 2, For they have taken of their daughters 
for themselves of Babylon and for their sons, so that the holy seed had mingled themselves with all the people of those lands. And worldwide was mingling the doctrine with Babylon, weren't they? And we were going along with a certain amount of it. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers has been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. The full realization of what had happened to Israel in Babylon came on Ezra. And it horrified him so much that he tore his clothes right down the middle, ripped them apart, and sat there and jerked every hair out of his head. Can you imagine that? He must have had a fairly long beard that he could get hold of as he sat there a few hairs at a time and jerked them all out of his face until he was bald-faced. Now, when God says rend and tear hair, it's violent. God expects a big response out of us. Not just, oh, I guess I better pray more. Oh, I guess we ought to keep this a little better. He wants us clean all the way through, pure and holy and righteous before him. The righteousness of the saints is what he responds to. Then were assembled to me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished till the evening sacrifice. I arose from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and said, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to you, my God. Sounds like the publican. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up to the heavens. And you know what he asked them to do? To put away their strange wives, even put away their children by those strange wives. There was no monkeying around here. He wanted Israel cleaned up from stem to stern. That's a pretty hard saying. But that is what was required of them. And they went through quite a process of going through everybody's genealogy and being sure that Israel was pure. That was a physical thing. But he wants us to go through that same arduous process and cut out anything impure that is in our hearts and minds. And we have to be willing to give up our families. Aren't some of us doing that now? Our church family is scattered. Our physical families in the church are scattered. And to some degree, we're having to give them up now. It's very frustrating, very hard, very difficult. But God says we have to go through this. It was very humbling and shameful for a man to have his hair plucked out and not have a beard. When David's men had their beards cut off, they went and hid until they grew beards because they were looked upon as women if they didn't have beards. It was shameful. It was humiliating. Do we have extra wives, brethren? Do we harbor parts of Babylon in our hearts or TVs or magazines or thoughts? Do we commit idolatry, self-worship? This is my attitude. This is my understanding. This is my view. My family. My splinter. It's okay to have special friends, but do we tend to exclude others sometimes who become a little bit cliquish because it's easier to talk to some than others, or do we make the absolute effort that is required to make sure everyone is included? It isn't usually pleasant to visit people in prison. It isn't always pleasant to visit people who are sick. 
But isn't that how Christ said he would know if we were his disciples? Christ didn't seem to think it was such a big deal to love those who love us. That's easy to do. He said, love your enemies. Now there is a real requirement. Show favor to those we like and exclude others. Isn't that a bit of a strange wife? How do we treat each other? Condemnation for condemnation, railing for railing, criticism for criticism. Sometimes that is still too true in God's true church. Are we his disciples? What was that story about the moat and the beam? Get the beam out of our own eye before criticizing somebody else's? But it is so natural. It's so easy to criticize somebody else. It's so carnal. It's so normal. It's hard not to. What about those who might have left us or who are stay-at-homers? It's easy to be a little superior in our attitudes. We create disharmony and disunity the moment we begin to think that we're just a little bit special above others. It disunifies. It doesn't draw them to us, that's for sure. If we esteem them better than ourselves, then they would be drawn to us. When we humble ourselves, it draws people to us. But when we show pride and vanity and ego in our attitudes and in our theology, it causes them to back off. Now, what does Christ require of us? Philippians 2, 3. Esteem others better than yourselves. That's a mouthful, brethren. That is a hard saying. It's not technical, but it is hard. 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll turn back to that one. 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll start in verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. There's one that a lot of people have simply gotten away from and do ignore today. Because they don't think anyone should be over them at all. They don't think they need teachers at all. Wait till this new booklet comes out with your next forerunner about do we need a church and for the perfecting of the saints and see if it doesn't answer some of those questions for you. But let's look at that. How are we doing? This is probably, I won't say it's the biggest, but it's one of the very biggest problems in the church today is the distrust, the mistrust of the ministry because of misuse and abuse in the past, not correctly handling what authority God did give, and to our shame, to my shame, to the shame of all of us. But that does not mean that God has suddenly removed the ministry entirely. I still need exhorted. I still need corrected. I still need inspired. I still need you. And you need the ministry. So much the more as we see the day approach. Now, I know what the arguments are against this, but those arguments ignore some very simple, plain scriptures. 
And those arguments do not have a foundation in the Bible and they can be proved. Sure, there has been idolatry in the past. Sure, we have set Mr. Armstrong up on a pedestal in the past. Sure, it's been done a, a, since. And we've had a malarkial reign in some cases. That's something that you find in the hen yard. But people say there should be no hierarchy. It's so easy to see a hierarchy in the Bible. It, it's, it's so plain, it's as simple as a nose on your face. Paul did say, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't deify me. Don't idolize me. But what's my example? And as I follow Christ, follow. And if I'm blind and going the wrong way, don't fall in the ditch with me. But pride prevents us. I'm just as good as he is. My opinion is just as good. Who does he think he is anyway? There are all kinds of arguments. But did not God give the ministry as a gift, brethren? That's what the Bible says. He gave the ministry as a gift to us. Did he not give with that gift abilities to help us and serve the people? What happens when we spurn a gift of God? Think about Esau and his birthright and how he treated it lightly. Think about what Paul said about neglecting so great a salvation. And if God has given us a gift of any kind, boy, we ought to appreciate it. How do you feel? Or how have you felt in the past? If you take a gift to someone, maybe something as a child even in school, you may. And they look third grade or kindergarten, and maybe you were in the sixth grade when you did it. I don't know. But your parents would make over it and appreciate it. But boy, if you sense that they thought that that little gift you had brought to them was not important to you, it crushed them. How do you think God feels when he gives us gifts? And we don't truly appreciate them. The truth that we have. Those whom he has sent to service. Now, there were some bad apples in the barrel, and they, some, to some degree, spoil the whole bunch. I understand that. But we're trying to rectify it. We're trying to remove the distrust by treating you properly and lovingly and as brothers. Again, rending is violent. Can we rend this distrust from our hearts? Can we do what Paul tells us here to esteem them very highly? I know I'm asking you a very tough question, but if you've had those feelings, God says we have to heal it, brethren. Somehow we have to get past this. We have to heal it. What happened when Ezra humbled himself before God back there. We go back to Ezra 10 very briefly. Verse 1. Now when Ezra had prayed, and, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled to him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. When he was willing to humble himself, to apologize for having despised God's law, unity occurred. Real repentance and humility is necessary before we can feel close to each other. Whether it be toward the ministry or toward each other as a human being. 
Now, we've seen that rending is very violent. And I want to use one more example here to close. John 19, <clears throat> verse 23, the time of Christ's crucifixion. <clears throat> he had beautiful, expensive, seamless garments. And the soldiers were going to rend them in pieces and divvy them up. Just tear that beautiful garment that he had apart. One said, I'll take this piece and go my way. You take that piece and go your way. And that's what we tend to do with the words of Christ. He tells each and every one of us to live by every word of God. And yet we tend to think that there are certain scriptures that validate a certain philosophy that we might have. And we ignore other very plain scriptures that might counterman that or balance it or offset it. So we take our peace and go our way. But Christ's word and Christ's garment was too high quality for that. So they finally decided to cast lots on it, and one would take it all. But Jesus Christ was stripped absolutely naked, brethren. The Protestants have their pictures of Christ, and they always put some kind of a loincloth, or they put some kind of a, a robe on him of some kind so that he is covered, the private parts. But that's not the way they crucified people. That's the picture that Protestants have put in our mind, but if you read their books, and I looked at several. Here's one from the New Bible Dictionary. The condemned man was stripped naked, laid on the ground with a crossbeam under his shoulders, and his arms were his hands tied or nailed. From Hastings Bible Dictionary. The condemned was stripped of his clothing by the soldiers, detailed to carry out the sentence, who immediately appropriated as their lawful booty. Smith's Bible Dictionary. The one to be crucified was stripped naked of all his clothes, and then followed the most awful moment of all. He was laid down upon the implement of torture. His arms were stretched along the cross beams, and at the center of the open palms, the point of a huge iron nail was placed, which by the blow of a mallet was driven home into the wood. And this continued with the feet and so on. Anchor Bible Dictionary. <clears throat> Whether living or already dead, the victim suffered a degrading loss of all dignity by being bound or nailed to a stake. Where does it say here? Oh, I guess on, on it goes. The victims carried the cross, or at least a transverse beam, to the place of execution where they were stripped and bound or nailed to the beam, raised up and seated on a seat aisle or small wooden peg in the upright beam. Well, they all say they were stripped completely naked. Would Christ not do that or go through that? The total loss of dignity... If he required it of Adam and Eve, if he required it of Israel in Isaiah 3, then he had to go through it. It's that simple. He was totally, absolutely naked before men, completely exposed. Satan destroyed the unity in the universe, and he has to be totally exposed for what he is and put away. The first Adam was totally naked and shamed by his own sins. The second Adam could be no less. The only thing Jesus Christ was wearing on that stake was the shame of our sins. It hurt. He agonized. He bore our burdens, just as we are instructed to bear each other's burdens. What Paul tells us, bear each other's burdens. 
But as human beings, we try to generally lay more burden on them. We picket people. We expose them. We expose their weaknesses. We expose their sins. And our talk and our gossip. That's the human way. But Jesus Christ was willing to let himself be stripped completely naked, totally exposed to the whole wide world and nailed there for everyone to see. He was utterly forsaken, completely alone, completely divided and disunified from the Father. Father, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken because he was bearing your burden in mine. A soldier stabbed him in the side and rent his skin apart. His blood gushed out. And what did he say? Forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. What an attitude. Then he died. The sky was blackened. The earthquake rent the ground in pieces. And dead people got up out of the graves where the ground was opened above their heads and walked into town. The veil of the temple was rent in twain. It was violently ripped apart and spread open that the Holy of Holies was exposed. For the first time in man's history, mankind could go directly to the top, could go to the Father. Before, that, always talked to the Lord, to Jesus Christ. And the priest only went into the Holy of Holies in type once a year. But now that veil was rent, it was torn completely in two. What an incredible opportunity was opened up then for you and me to go directly to the God who created the entire universe. What a gift Christ made to allow us for the very first time to be unified with our Father. We didn't know our Father before that. We were fatherless children from Adam and Eve all the way down. Unity with both the Father and the Son is now possible. Who is going to bring unity? Through their Holy Spirit and their attitude. Unity is possible between brothers in Christ. Now, when you consider what he went through, that we might have opportunity to be unified with him, with his Father, and with each other, how can we despise such a sacrifice? How can we despise such a gift and continue to hurt one another and leave some out? How can we continue to try to hide from God and hold things in our hearts that we don't want him to know about or we don't want to admit or we don't want to take the time and the energy and the frustration that's required to overcome? And so we don't go to God and don't say, expose me, Father, clean me, and every corner of my heart rend it violently and expose the filth and deception there. How can we, like Esau, despise this abject humility that our Savior went through? That was the beginning of unity there. That is what allowed them to be all of one accord on Pentecost, a condition which did not last long, because human nature and Satan began to destroy it immediately. Bottom line is, if we are to be unified, we will have to humble ourselves before each other just as Christ did for us, patiently taking punishment 
persecution, and in some cases persecution that we don't deserve. Quietly accepting correction and criticism from others, right or wrong. God says if we suffer and we deserve it, there's no reward for that. But if we suffer persecution for something we didn't do and we take it patiently, ah, then there is a reward. But our carnal pride does not allow us so often to accept wrong. I didn't do that! Brethren, come on. They might have got you for the wrong thing, but they got the right guy. We're not perfect. Next time they'll get you for what you did do. I've been accused of things I didn't do. I've also done a lot of things I didn't get accused of. There's probably been more of that than the other. Can we quietly accept correction and criticize criticism from others? Can we despise the shame, not rendering criticism for criticism, loving at all times, having compassion on the weak? See, we need to rend our hearts. They're not pure. They're not clean yet. We are yet carnal. I am yet carnal. I have to rend it out of there. What did you do to a pig when you rendered it on the farm? You boiled it down till you boiled the lard out of it. And we need to be boiled down till the Lord is in us, as opposed to the lard. He is the door, the only door to the sheepfold. And if we rend our hearts and humble our attitudes, we can live in peace and harmony. Christ opened the door to unity. We've got to walk through. But part of the responsibility is on you and me. But it takes drastic, violent means because our human nature is drastic and violent and deceitful and desperately wicked. Strip out the pride of self. It hurts, it shames to do that. When every fiber of our being cries to be avenged when we've been wrongly accused. Brethren, how badly do we want to be in God's kingdom? Remember how I asked you at the beginning? What did you give for unity? What did you pay? What did Christ pay? He lived 33 and one-half years on this earth and never allowed pride, vanity, or ego, or lust, or jealousy to impinge upon his righteousness. He was tempted in all points like as we are. He was just as prone to sin as any human being has ever been. He had the pulls and the desires of the flesh just as strongly, and being a healthy man, probably stronger than any of us. And he never yielded once. Thirty-three and one-half years of absolute torture. Why? Because he needed it? He did it only for you and me. That was the only, absolute only reason he did that. He presented himself as a living sacrifice, and he requires that of us in Romans 12.1. How much are you willing to give? Jesus wanted to be there with all his heart, mind, body, and soul. And he'd already been there. He did this just because he wanted us to be there. The only reason. He has the same depth of emotion for us that he had for himself. He loves us as much as he loves himself. 
He lived it and still is today. He suffered more. He sacrificed more than any man has ever suffered on the face of this earth in terms of just plain physical pain and emotional violence to his psyche. He paid the price for unity. And he did it only as an old, older brother who already had it made and was in the kingdom of God. Just for you and me. Now, in this context, it seems absolutely ludicrous, stupid, and ignorant that we should hold anything back from him. Our health, our wealth, our pride, our life. How silly to he who knows all to try to hide anything and not rend it out of our hearts and cleanse ourselves to the bone. We cry for unity. All the churches wish we could get back together. We'd love to be at love with our brother again as we once were. Do we really mean it? Are you and I willing to pay the prices Jesus Christ paid for unity in the transmission?